Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Hi, everybody. Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, the podcast for people who like to think about privacy and data protection in interesting, hopefully, and uh, challenging ways. Uh, brought to you today by myself, David Longford, a manager at OneTrust, Alexis Kadafidis, lead privacy counsel at OneTrust, and our host, as ever, Edouard Oosteran, who's a partner and head of the privacy and cybersecurity practice at Hogan Levels. Gentlemen, welcome and welcome back. Good to see you both <laughs> in person. You. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Absolutely lovely view of London today, as as ever. As, as yeah, ever, as <laughs> that has that hasn't changed. <laughs> Probably has a little bit, but <laughs> Probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So ground rules for today: no one can be on mute. That's uh, obviously something we no. <laughs> now we're not on uh, on Teams or uh, video conferencing. But um, yeah, back to back to normal, really. Uh, with a, hopefully a good 40, 45 minutes of conversation about latest uh, issues in privacy and data protection. So we've got a few issues we wanted uh, to cover. I think we'll start with UK's proposed data protection reform. I know um, lots of interest from about the privacy world about that, not just in the UK. So hopefully hear a little bit about, thought we'd recap where, how we got to this point and then just hear about what you're hearing from, from respective clients and partners. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, sort of current state of play for data transfers globally. Uh, obviously still the consequences or um, impact and uh, development since Shrems 2 last year and, and where we are with uh, new SCCs, for example. Um, we will hopefully touch on other proposals for sort of EU regulation, like the data, um, artificial, artificial intelligence regulation, um, and maybe on to cookies and consent management. Anything else? Sounds it's a perfect. Very long yeah. <laughs> list like a, minutes, a good so. menu to me. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Okay, let's crack on. So I think the, the real thing we're all going to kind of maybe geekily excited about is, is discussing the UK reform that's... Um, really underway at the moment. We're in a consultation period that uh, I think goes until, you said the 19th of November? 19th of November, so right. coming up. Yep. Um, so I thought we'd just start with a very quick uh, timeline of, of how we got to where we are, and then everyone kind of throw their ideas on where this is going to go, so it's super interesting, and yeah, um, hopefully everyone will en- enjoy listening. So obviously the, the big catalyst for this is, is Brexit. So you know, we had a transition period which ended uh, New Year's Eve um, last year, and so we went into this year, not part of the EU, and at the end of the transition period, which meant that everybody started saying, okay, is there going to be an adequacy decision? Um, very confidently on, our, I think, our last podcast, or the one before that, well, we said, <laughs> let's stop the chat. <laughs> of course there will be. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you called it. Um, and we'll come on to your predictions more in a minute. But uh, uh, June, I think we had the adequacy decision, or the commission confirmed that the EU was, uh, was adequate. Um but then very quickly, you know, I think a matter of weeks later, it was sort of um, August, um, um, we had this, or September, I think, you know, the release of the DCMS report with the new direction for the UK, all the proposals that, you know, are being discussed in the consultation period. So can we just recap a little bit about that development, let's say from where we are in, in June from being adequate or declared adequate to saying right in September, this is actually where sure. we want to go. <laughs> and, sure. and let's just try and reca- uh, recap what that means for everybody. A few of them, it's a whole huge document full of um, proposed changes, but a few of the most important ones. And also try and define for listeners um, whether this is a departure from adequacy or whether this is an evolution of 
the UK dictatorship regime and um, and what the government's trying to do here and and how business will feel about it. Lots to cover. <laughs> what do we think? Um, let, well, let's start with an easy one. So, how how is it different from the current um, uh, GDPR two? Let's say in, in the UK. Uh, in what ways uh, has the government proposed that the UK should uh, should go? Well, the, if you look at the government proposals, all 400 and, well, oh no, not 400, 146 pages of, of it, yep. um, you can tell that there are quite significant changes in the pipeline. Mm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so long. And yep. you can also tell that that has been the plan of the government for quite some time. You don't improvise those changes no. or those, propo pro those proposals. So. First of all, I don't think there is a radical departure. I don't think the UK is saying, OK, let's just scan the GDPR and start with a white piece of paper. It's not, it's not that. Mm -hmm. But it is looking at a number of issues from how to interpret legitimate interests, how to ensure that uh, processing for research purposes can be justified more easily, yeah. how to transfer personal data out of the UK in a more pragmatic way, how to ensure that cookie data can be used also in a more uh, practical and easy way. So there are subtle changes, but all over the place, mm. that we, I think we will, mar will mark a departure from what we have seen you know, in the past three years, GDPR and, and certainly even before with the e-privacy directive. Yeah, that's really interesting, Eduardo. And um, I know obviously your team ended up doing a really big exercise. As you mentioned, the document is 140 pages or something. And um, and that's just the, the government's proposals. The, the consultation questions themselves are also very, very detailed, um, you know, providing respondents with a lot of flexibility in providing their responses with, to what extent they agree with some proposals and their justifications and additional thoughts. So, um, you know, quite a lot, I think, that the government will, will get back. Um, and I know your team has been doing, uh, has already submitted their response to it. I, I guess you mentioned a couple of issues already of things like legitimate interests that the government is having a look at and uh, processing for scientific or medical research purposes. But is there anything from uh, you and the team's analysis that you would say are, are a couple of big themes that you honed in on? specifically? So I think the big, the big themes are one that I think the government is trying to make it easier for smaller medium-sized companies so mm -hmm. that data protection compliance doesn't become an impediment for doing business. I, I would argue that it shouldn't it should shouldn't be even without changing the law but I think the other big um, I guess angle to this consultation is the fact that what the, the UK government is trying to do is to push the boundaries a bit in terms of how to interpret the existing law. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not radically changing things, as I was saying earlier. It's trying to say, okay, how do we reconcile the what we're seeing today and the 
opportunities to innovate and to make the most of data and, and so on. And frankly, we, we see that daily with a framework that already exists that is there to design, is designed to, to protect people's data and people's privacy, but in a way that is again, compatible with all of these things we're talking about, like innovation. And I think mm -hmm. in itself is a good test of how to interpret the GDPR as we know it. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that the UK approach becomes the new baseline because the GDPR has been a bit of has been seen as a baseline for com for global compliance for many organizations worldwide yeah. and other jurisdictions even have followed the the GDPR model but the GDPR is not set in stone i, I would say as a, as a legislative um, tool so perhaps there are aspects at least of of the UK approach that could be seen as the next evolution mm -hmm. in the in the GDPR way of looking at data protection law. So I think that's very interesting. And not just organisations. I mean, Lexus, like, you, you and your team, you've done loads of analysis of uh, GDPR versus other new and emerging sure. regulations. Right? Yeah, and that's a that's become a whole piece of, of yeah. what you do with data guidance. And so, I guess what we've seen in the last three or what, three to five years since GDPR confirmed in twenty sixteen is other countries uh, adopting GDPR as a kind of baseline, mm -hmm. uh, as you said, organizations might do. Yeah. But perhaps the UK is thinking that they might be able to find this new way forward and, and that could be a, uh, something that other countries maybe follow, will follow in the future. Because after all, there are still lots and lots of countries that haven't either developed a data protection law yet or are seeking to redevelop theirs in, you know, in the internet here. I'm thinking of Israel, for example, mm -hmm. you know, that they always um, have, have been for a long time looking at uh, redeveloping their framework. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point. And, I, and there, there are a lot of things about the UK proposals. I mean, they, the government acknowledges it themselves. I mean, they, you know, a lot of what is talked about is uh, put forward is the privacy management program aspect of it, which can be seen and they reference from other jurisdictions like Canada and Singapore. And, um, you know, there, there is there are other jurisdictions out there already that may have a similar approach to things. Um, and it's interesting what you were saying, Eduardo, about um, potentially the future of the GDPR, because I know even a couple of years ago when um, the European Commission did a review of the GDPR, one of the things they had to think about in its report was, um, do we need to adjust the GDPR to make allowances for certain things that the UK government also talks about, particularly the SME point mm -hmm. um, of adjusting some of the requirements under the GDPR to make greater flexibility for SMEs, for example. Um, but it will be interesting, as you mentioned, I mean, if the UK does progress with its reforms and we have something, something different, what will be its impact internationally on other jurisdictions yeah. that are looking at or the GDPR? So I think the signalling of the, the proposals is, yeah, I would guess is aimed at the SME kind of mid-market space. Let's say, and, you know, there's a huge amount of people working for smaller businesses in the UK who um, would maybe respond positively to less bureaucracy, etc. I actually wrote down the, the, the chapters as, as a note here, you know, the chapter titles of the, the proposal. It's reducing barriers to responsible innovation, reducing burdens on businesses 
Uh, this is chapter one and chapter two. Chapter three is boosting trade and reducing barriers. So clearly a message saying, you know, making life, life easier for the for the small businessman. But um, maybe the, as you said, the, the, the bigger consequence of this is a, a you know a new a new conversation about what is um, I don't know. It just seems funny to me because a lot of the areas are, are, are quite, in some ways, quite radical. Like you don't need a data protection officer, for example, in, in many situations. But I can't quite reconcile that with, with this idea that we've got a, a potential UK defining a new direction for data protection just yet. But is that is that the way your clients are feeling about it? But I think, so what the UK is trying to do here is to rewrite some elements of the GDPR and put them in, in, in the law so that it's clearer to, to understand. Yeah. But I would argue that a lot of what they are trying to do, you can already do to an extent mm -hmm. under the current framework. So the, the GDPR itself, one of the good things about, about it is this what we often call the risk-based approach, yeah. right? Like, like you, the, 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 uh, the level of uh, compliance and the way in which the GDPR applies to you depends very much on what you are actually doing with the data. Yeah. And so it yeah. adapts. There's a lot that adapts itself. And there are aspects of the GDPR that are a little bit prescriptive, but most of it is not very prescriptive. It's, it's more like adaptable to the circumstances. So you would, you would say that the, what the UK is trying to do is to look at that approach and try to almost codify it in a way or mm -hmm. just to write it down and say, okay, well, in this sort of situations, we're going to take the view that, uh, for example, the legitimate interest test is met. Mm -hmm. Or in these situations, we're going to take the view that um, you don't really need, by law, a data protection officer. You don't need to do a data protection impact assessment. But we would expect you to have a degree so of a of compliance and possibly a compliance program mm -hmm. or compliance management approach that addresses the needs of the of the law. So it's it's another step, I guess, in the evolution of the GDPR that the UK is taking, and it'll be it would be very interesting, very interesting to see how influential this can be, and of course. You said that at the beginning, David, that at the origins of all this is Brexit. And Brexit is kind of is such a uh, disruptive word in a, in a way that it just, if you are pro-Brexit, you think whatever the UK government does is wonderful. If you are against Brexit, you think that it's crazy. So, But if you put that aside and you look at it as saying, okay, well, this country in its own way is trying to test the boundaries of, of the GDPR as a regulatory tool, then maybe, maybe we should be paying attention to these changes and see if they actually uh, achieve the main purpose in a more logical way. Mm -hmm. So, And the consistency is the risk-based approach. That's quite interesting, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And from, from a... <clears throat> Let's say for for your existing clients at the moment, let's say your your multinational clients, like a, a lot of our customers, um, I think one of the things that they're obviously it's very early at the moment. We will see what comes back, and I think the government has also put a lot on the table since it is that first kind of step, and 
gauging whatever the community and professionals and everybody thinks and obviously adjusting uh, if need be from there. But at the moment, I think from an international perspective or international data protection compliance perspective, are your clients, I don't know, not necessarily worried about it, but what's on their mind in terms of, okay, do we need to adjust anything for the UK or will they do anything differently for the UK or because over the last few years we've had GDPR apply in the UK and we've had the UK GDPR afterwards and the Data Protection Act 2018 etc but we're like well we're okay we're set up we have our DPO we're already doing our records of processing activities we've got our processes in place for DPIAs and when we you know, we've already done a lot of work yeah. for our UK entities that are set what, up. What if, value is there in loosening that? Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know. Loosening, I, I, maybe just changing it, I guess. But I think for the multinationals that are already complying or in the process of complying with the GDPR, the default position is, well, if you comply with the GDPR, you'll comply with UK law, whatever it says in the future. Yeah? And, and I think because that's the default position, it's, it's quite easy in, in that respect. Yeah. The question is, is there a better way? Yeah. You know, is there anything we could do better, uh, either because it's e- easier or we can um, uh, adapt what we already do and have en- enjoy greater flexibility in the UK is that to our strategic advantage or or not but also as I was saying I think we should look at we should always look at GDPR as something that is evolving it's not set in stone it's not like in 2016 it was a, it was written approved that's it that's what you need to do it's, it's evolving and the UK is part of that evolution because even though it's no longer part of the EU, it has the same framework. So in the same way the UK compliance approach is affected by what is happening in Europe and the European uh, Court of Justice decisions, for example, in this area, even outside the EU, is still affected by it. Yeah. The opposite is true, in which the UK can have an influential effect even outside the EU on how the GDPR is understood beyond the UK, mm. and particularly in those jurisdictions that have followed the GDPR approach, but are not in the EU. And I think that's where this becomes really interesting because organizations, I see that all the time, that they're looking for a consistent approach to compliance. Yeah. How is there anything we can do across the world yeah. and allows <laughs> us to comply with the laws around the world? Yeah. Right? And Okay, so where's the baseline? And yeah. and if the baseline, if the UK approach to the GDPR becomes a more uh, realistic baseline, that is a massive. Uh, that the, the level of influence there is massive. Yeah. So I think that's where you need to look at uh, the UK change, and that's the perspective from which you need to look at the UK changes. Is how that may inform an interpretation of the UK, the EU, and the other uh, GDPR-style laws that exist around the, around the world. And what will be fascinating in the next few years is the US piece involved as well. If that progresses from state yeah. laws to a federal 
law at some point? I know there's been many proposed uh, or bills kind of proposed. But if that actually evolves, as everybody kind of thinks it will at some point, if if the UK piece is kind of more clear by then, and we have this, as you say, a lower baseline or different baseline, exactly. it might have a big effect on that. Great. Okay, let's move on from uh, UK data reform to um, kind of an update on data transfers. Um, the proposals in the well, the UK proposals for data transfers, I think you're telling me um, about this recently, Alexis, international data transfer agreements, IDTAs. Yeah. Another new abbreviation to yeah. get used to. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, we've got a couple of things happening here in the yeah. UK, haven't we? So we've got the government um, proposals of a new data direction. Um, and then we also had the ICO's consultation open and close around um, the International Data Transfer Agreement, which is the ICO's uh, mechanism or answer to the European Commission's uh, standard contractual clauses, except a little bit different. <laughs> um, and Are they prescriptive in, in the same way? Or? Well, I mean, this is one thing that I wanted to ask you, Eduardo, because again, <laughs> it, takes, it takes inspiration from other jurisdictions that I think is trying to be a little bit of a different mechanism, a little bit of a wider instrument in a lot of ways in terms of how it interacts with other developments so for example new zealand also uh recently had model clauses mm -hmm. under their privacy act and um there's a bit of interaction between that there's um a bit more of this global approach i feel to it rather than um gdpr prohibition on data transfers unless standard contractual clauses are used and these are the standard contractual clauses. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Eduardo, on how you see it as being this different type of mechanism than the traditional standard contractual clauses that we've been used to, even with the updates um, that we, we've had more recently. Sure. So the, the the consultation by the ICO itself, which of course predates the the DCMS consultation, has been very interesting because it has given us a, a glimpse of the thinking of the ICO in relation mm -hmm. to international data transfers, and there are some interesting uh, fundamental questions that they were asking. They were also consulting on the on their own data transfer risk assessment mechanism right. and as you're saying it is it's slightly different from the EDPB approach and ultimately they are also consulting on the mechanisms to overcome the limitations on international data transfers and essentially it's a contractual mechanism but what it, what is been interesting is that even though the UK has proposed its own standalone model of, of SCC, what appears to have generated a lot more interest from certainly the, the companies we, we work with is what they call the UK addendum to the EU SCC. <laughs> yeah. So it just shows that despite Brexit, you cannot operate in a vacuum. And I think UK, uh, the, the regulator understands that and, and everybody should understand that. And that means that to legitimize data transfers out of the UK contractually, at this stage, the most popular option 
if you can call it like that, is to go for the new EU SCC yeah. with the UK addendum. addendum, which, I mean, addendum is almost too, too big a word because it's basically adapting the kind of things that you need to say, like who the right supervisory authority is, what the governing law, what the jurisdiction should be and all that, and refer to the ICO, to UK, to English law or, or whichever law in the, in the, in the UK and, um, and to the, the English courts. So, Which is also in draft form as well. It is in draft, but it's already happened. <laughs> the thing is, it's, it's in... It's and, <laughs> yeah, and clients are saying, oh, but can we do this if it's in draft? Well, and my answer is, well, do you think the the ICO would would tell you off if you were using that when they are already saying that that's that's how they see it's going to yeah. happen? So I think the reality is that it's one of these areas where reality has taken over the consultation process in a way because we are seeing that daily. You know, companies implement. You know, we are in in the middle of the of a major, major, major SCC implementation program yeah. across the board. We're seeing it with big uh, uh, controllers. We're seeing it with big processors, and a lot of the 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 emphasis, the efforts, and in in, in fact, the budgets are focused on on this type of SCC implementations. Right. So you're not going to say, "Oh, we're just going to wait six months and see yeah. what happens in the UK," because that's not how the world works. So, of course, most companies are saying, well, we just tag along the, the EU SEC for the UK for UK transfers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really um, all packed together timing wise, isn't it? Over the last um, six, six months or so since the new SECs came out, we had the First, the September deadline. Now we're going to have the December deadline um, to utilize SCCs for all new existing moving forwards and totally phase out the old ones. Um, and then we have the UK's approach, which was obviously perfectly timed because everybody was asking questions. Well, what do we do about SCCs and being in the UK and et cetera? And we had the addendum. Um, and as you say, the realities are, are very interesting, which was... I'm curious to see how it ends up shaping the next year of even the ICO's consultation or what they end up finalizing. Um, when is that supposed to finish? Well, it's finished now. It's, okay. it's already finished for the um, transfer consultation. Yeah. And as Eduardo mentioned, I mean, we talked a just about the IDTA part, but there are so many other um, elements to it, like... TRAs, transfer risk assessments instead of TIAs, um, which was going to actually be my other question, Eduardo, since since you mentioned it, is obviously everybody's been looking towards the EDPB's recommendations on you know how to carry out a transfer impact assessment and what kinds of you know additional measures can be put in place and you know what to do about third country assessments, etc. And then the ICO has also issued their draft guidance on how to carry out the same assessment, which is a little bit different. Um, and I wondered whether clients had already been looking to that piece as well. Obviously, the addendum is a very practical piece that you know needed mm -hmm. to be included straight away. But how much attention have your clients been given to, ha have they been giving to 
the transfer risk assessment piece? So the, the transfer risk assessment, as I said, is very much a draft, and I right. think it's going to evolve quite a bit between right. now and when it is finally approved by the ICO, maybe by the end of the year or early next year. But what is interesting about it is perhaps the the change in approach from what we've seen with the ADPB. Because ultimately, both tools uh, pursue the same aim, yeah. which is to, to, to meet the, that uh, very tough requirement of the ECJ to assess that the mechanism that you use to legitimize transfers provides the right level of protection. So that's what both things are about. The, but the EDPB approaches this, <laughs> approaches this almost as a mission impossible in some cases, where you say, well, actually, you can do all these measures, but because um, you may not be able to do it all, then you're going to have to consider whether the, trans- the transfer is at all lawful. The ICO... Uh, even though it is, is again, putting on the, on the table the same kind of tool, is more about, okay, these are the kind of things you need to assess in order to, to, to determine the level of risk. And it almost accepts, the ICO is almost accepting that the transfers are actually going to happen anyway. And, uh, and it's just a matter of assessing the risk so that then you can deploy the right mechanisms to deal with that risk. And frankly, that's a lot closer to what is happening right. on the ground and what I've, been, I've seen clients for the best part of a year or even more than a year, to be honest, since, since the Strand's to decision, where frankly, I don't see a single company out there saying, oh, we may, we may get to the point where the transfers cannot happen. We need to suspend the transfer. There isn't a single company out there that is thinking along those lines. They're, they're thinking is, we'll do what it takes but the transfers need to happen, mm. you know, and and I think that's a bit the difference, perhaps, in the approach. And and it is true, and I've seen massive efforts by some companies to yeah. say, okay, well, this is the exposure to our data, but frankly, we need to, and our data needs to flow globally, not just to the US, but to anywhere yeah, in the world. Yeah. And and this is the best we can do in terms of protecting the data, and this is how we we determine that this is the best we can do, and and what is necessary to protect the data. And I think. It is that slightly more pragmatic way of looking at it that it that is uh, sort of uh, that you can see in the UK tool as opposed to the EDPB one. And and I'm not criticizing the EDPB one, by the way. I think that there is a, a positive side to the EDPB yeah, yeah. side, but it's it's a bit uh, mm. it's it's certainly less aligned with what I'm seeing in, in the real world, as I'm saying. And you, well, I mean, I guess we could speculate on the reasons as to why that might be. Um, but one thing that just made me think about it is that obviously the ICO, um, you know, ha- had a little bit more time and exposure to it as maybe one um, causal factor. You know, the ED- everybody was immediately looking to the EDPB after the CJU's decision. What do we do? When is the guidance coming out? Can we hurry up because we need to start getting to work. And obviously the EDPB ended up um, pushing as fast as it could. And maybe the ICO, you know, has also, um, you know, taken away a, a, a lot of feedback from organizations that already started going through the process over the last year and a half um, and embedded that into um, into its guidance or its approach on how it sees things. Um, 
But I guess a little bit of a zoom out because there are a couple of things, you know, happening. Obviously, in Germany, there was the announcement from the federal and state uh, data protection authorities that they were going to carry out a countrywide um, survey or assessment, send out a questionnaire to a fair few organizations to understand what they were doing about data transfers. There have been um, limited, but still a few um, enforcement actions or decisions from DPAs in relation to international data transfers and SHREMS 2 and how um, organizations are applying you know, the, the, the decision. If you were to do a crystal ball moment of where would we find ourselves in another 12 months, like how do you see international data transfers developing from here with everything that's going on? Obviously, everybody, as you, you mentioned, a lot of your clients are head down at the moment, massive standard contractual clause, exercise, huge project it's a project, a huge project, lots of investment, lots of resource, time, money, etc. Um, all in an effort. And there is still a little bit that is unknown as to how this will all work out in the end. Well, there is no doubt in my mind that we're going to see increased scrutiny on right. international data transfers. And for example, just a few weeks ago, the EDPP announced that they were going to investigate um, the use of uh, global uh, cloud providers by public sector yes. uh, bodies in the EU. And again, that's another way of scrutinizing international data transfers big time. And all that is, is happening. And I think the, what we have seen so far is just the beginning mm. of, again, an increased level of scrutiny. But at the same time, I don't think that in data localization as as is is the answer or is going to become the answer. Let's put it this way. I don't think that in a year from now we will be saying, okay, well, we don't have to worry about international data transfers anymore because all the data is localized in, in Europe. There's no chance of that happening. I mean unless we turn off the internet. You know. So I think the the question is how do you reconcile the fact that transfers will continue to happen with an increased level of scrutiny? And at the same time, you have to operate in the real world with real budgets, real amount, yeah. of, real amount of resources and real amount of, of time. You know, you, we can't spend every single hour of the day doing transfer impact <laughs> assessment. And we cannot spend the money we don't have scrutinizing every single country in the world. So the, the reality is that it's all about priorities. It is all, and we will see, uh, as I said, maybe a degree of enforcement mm -hmm. against those that have done nothing. And, and there would be a degree of a scrutiny uh, towards those that have done a bit. Mm -hmm. And we may see by this time next year some situations where those who have undertaken transfer impact assessments or risk assessments will have to show yeah. why they've taken the position they have taken. We still haven't seen that. 
Yeah. You know, well, all the all the enforcement has been on cases where this didn't even exist. There yeah. hasn't there hadn't been any any transfer impact assessment. But what about the day when a, a regulator said, "Well, let me see your transfer impact assessment. I'm going to take a view myself as to whether you got it right." Yeah. And that will be interesting yeah. because then we will start to see the real level of tolerance by regulators and 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 not, but also the, the real level of um, or the depth. Of the analysis that has that have been adopted by different types of organisations. Yeah, yeah. A continuing, a continuing evolution with the transfers landscape. Um, and what? Just one, one final piece before we move on uh, outside of transfers. Just because I, it hasn't gotten an awful lot of attention because the focus has been on TIAs and SCCs. Um, but the, the other abbreviation out there in the transfer world is BCRs. <laughs> um, and I know the EDPB, when uh, the CJU's decision came out, obviously said the same criteria should be applied to binding corporate rules as well. Um, have you seen any, any movement in that respect, any kind of um, inkling from regulators or questions from clients around what do we do about PCRs moving forwards given Schrems 2? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, BCR has always been a, a very elaborate exercise getting yeah. a BCR appro- approved. But the difference between where we were a year and a bit ago and where we are today is that if you submit your BCR documentation for approval, the one thing that the DPAs will ask for is your transfer impact assessment. Right. So, so how do you how do you ensure that this BCR you have created and you're putting in place actually meets the the requirements from that perspective? So alongside the, your BCR application and all the documentation that goes with it, you will have to show your that time. that uh, transfer impact assessment report so that's the way in which this has had an impact on that and maybe then um as you were saying from some of the regulatory activity of interpretation of organizations tias maybe we get to see that from a bcr perspective as well Quite if possibly, a yes. tia is submitted and they say okay well you know maybe you need to soup up efforts in this particular aspect or something along those lines yeah, yeah, and and we'll see how. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, data protection authorities have always been very demanding when it comes to BCR. So I don't think they're going to lower their standards in respect of the TIAs for BCRs. I think they'll be very thorough as well. Yeah. But it's interesting what you're saying is because people are being so pragmatic, and at the moment, as you're saying, you know, with the, the for example, the um, what you're closing with the, the draft ICO um, transfer agreements. Um, you know, making do with what's in draft format at the moment, how the regulators will look at that if they have this high standard to BCRs when they look at what people are actually doing, and which is making do, as I, you know, as I understand. Yeah, but although one good thing about BCR is that BCRs have always been scrutinized from that perspective right. of, of government access to data. Right. And even after the first SREMS case, you know, we're talking of, you know, what, six years ago? and then. Yeah, yeah. 2015, after the first frames decision, 
I remember saying, well, the the way forward here in relation to government access to data is to do what the data protection authorities already require for processor BCR. And there was, at the time, the processor BCR yeah. approval criteria already included some um, uh, measures to address government access to data. Yeah. And, and in a sense, the, the new SCC have adopted that, that approach. So it, it's not like, in a sense, everything has already been invented at, up to yeah. a point. In, in the sense that this, this um, uh, scrutiny on government access to data is not new. It's not, it's not from SREMS 2. It already existed after SREMS 1. There you go. Yeah, cool. Got a history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stepping away from data transfers and just thinking a little bit more about future yeah. um, regulations, let's talk a little bit about the proposed EU AI regulations. Um, we were having a chat about it last week, Alexis, so you can talk maybe through in a minute where we are and you know what stage we're at. But as I understand that the main thrust of uh, the proposed regulations is maybe more from the EU's perspective to define what is high risk uh, processing in an AI context. And also put you know high requirements around that protections etc., um, which you know is entirely understandable and it's kind of provide a workable framework for using AI. Let's say, um, and interesting to see when we talk a bit further how the industry is perceiving it and what some of the pushback might be. Mm. Um, I, I also you know doing a bit of reading on the weekend saw you know, a few references to. Can't think of any off the top of my head, but statements within the proposed regulations are a bit vague or can be interpreted quite broadly. So again, not not quite matching the original aim of, of giving people a, a strong framework to work with. So, wh- where are we? Let's start with where we are in the in the development of the regulation, yeah. and then a bit from each of you on the feedback to the proposals so far. Yeah, I mean um, the stage very early. Um, So we have uh, a proposal from the European Commission um, from about six months ago or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has that has really been it so far. Um, And we haven't we haven't gone through um, very many processes since. Um, I mean, on I think it's obviously a very, very interesting development especially from a regulation perspective it's well i mean there are a couple of things to talk about one a regulation um which is interesting in of itself rather than a directive two on artificial intelligence which is you know the the future technology that we're always talking about so a dedicated regulation for ai the first of its kind, really, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've got a whole bunch of really, really great um, frameworks out there and guidelines guidelines and documents and recommendations from ICO here. They have their accountability, AI accountability framework. OECD has done a lot of work here. Um, Hong Kong, Singapore, there's lots out there. But this would, and there's been a lot of bills out there, um, but this is probably the the first most comprehensive proposal for a law on artificial intelligence, Um, which is, um, I think, quite an ambitious aim. Uh, And as a result, I think, as you mentioned, David, 
I think there's been a lot of discussion around it. I think that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's the first of its kind. There is a lot to unpack, both in terms of definitions of what you consider an art, a, a system of artificial intelligence to be, to what you codify, as you were mentioning, of like high-risk systems, what systems are prohibited. Obviously, a lot of um, interesting use cases um, to try and account for, whether it's medical devices, to employment, to you know financial services and credit scoring. So it's it's quite a lot. It's a big undertaking. Yeah, I think the point you made about being the first of its kind, that is what is truly relevant. So in the sense that this is a new area of law. Yeah. If, if I were a, a young lawyer <laughs> and I wanted to try something new, this would be it. I, wanted to, I would like to become an artificial intelligence lawyer, whatever that means in the future. At the moment, yeah. we don't really know. But um, it's, just, it's just a proposal and it's early days. But there is no doubt that the regulation of artificial intelligence as such, beyond the use of personal data, is coming. Mm-hmm. And we see what it looks like as it evolves and as it gets debated in parliaments and things like that. But there is no doubt that there, from a public policy perspective, there is, a, I guess, a perceived need that this is, uh, this is the way to go. And things move slowly on the legislative form, uh, front, as we, we all know, but it also has the effect, the knock-on effect of drawing attention to the provisions that exist in, in, yeah. in the law today, like the GDPR, that directly affect the, the development of artificial intelligence or the use of artificial intelligence for decision-making purposes. And it's interesting that that uh, artificial intelligence regulation, one of the things that has triggered is greater attention right. on, on the Article 22 of the right. GDPR around automated decision-making and, and significant uh, the significant effects of uh, automated decision-making. And I think that is... Uh, a sign of how much attention we're going to see being given to this to this issue. And is that so? Are, are, are um, organizations perhaps taking uh, their lens as the AI reg and looking through onto that automated decision making of applying, let's say, some of the provisions as they stand in the proposal of okay, what is a high risk system that's being talked about under the AI reg, and let's see about provisions under the GDPR, under the automated decision-making to, I guess, um, preempt or future-proof or to look at, re-examine things again? Is that is that the approach that's being taken already? So I, I think the answer is probably yes, in the sense that at the very least, the fact that there is a lot more thought being given to artificial intelligence as a sort of regulatory uh, or regulated practice, um, as I'm saying, those provisions that already exist in the law that already regulate that yeah. will will get that additional attention. In fact, even you know we were talking we were talking earlier about changes to UK data protection law. That's one of the possible changes how to interpret Article 22 of the of the UK GDPR. And I think um, what uh, 
where the overlap is between the, the artificial intelligence regulation and, and the GDPR aspects of it is the fact that automated decision making is becoming more and more pervasive. Mm-hmm. So uh, the GDPR approach is very much, well, don't rely on machines too much because humans <coughs> are better at making fair decisions. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we rely more and more and more yeah. on machines and artificial intelligence and automated decision making. And therefore, the role of human intervention may actually become uh, more residual mm-hmm. in, in, in the day-to-day way of operating. And therefore, what does that mean from the point of view of regulation? How do we, how do we ensure that uh, the decisions are still fair and the decisions are still right and the, the use of personal data is, is fair and proportional and, and all these things that we, we know that data protection law is about, but in the very specific context of artificial intelligence. Yeah. I suppose it's comforting to think uh, within the EU model of regulating decision-making that there's a, a human that's ultimately in charge, right? You can allow the, the benefits of AI to take place, but there is someone there exactly. to keep an eye on. <laughs> yeah. what, what I guess we are saying is that, that there has to be other protections that we need to find because that model might not scale in a, in a way that you know, technology will scale. Yeah, the, the other way of putting, uh, putting it is that there is an evolution in, in terms of uh, artificial intelligence um, of three, three stages. The stage one was when artificial intelligence didn't exist. Okay, fine. Now, stage two, which in, in the one in which we are, is artificial intelligence exists, but humans are still better at making decisions. Yeah. But there will become a point, and, and, and I appreciate that this may be controversial, but there will be, it will become a point where machines will be better at making decisions than humans are because they, they'll be able to process more information and again, not every single decision, but like, <laughs> uh, yeah, but decisions that are based on logic, decisions yeah. that are made of, yeah. based on information and, and having uh, the right level of knowledge. Yeah. Frankly, uh, humans are not perfect. And, you know, and, and we all, I think we should all acknowledge that. And therefore, a machine may become better, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And therefore, we're in that middle stage where there is the most like, uh, well, humans are better at making decisions and they need to oversee the, the machines. And, but we need to be prepared for the third stage. And I think that's what regulatory policy needs to look at, how to, how to move from the situation where we are today to that third stage, which is frankly around the corner, I, 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 I think, uh, in terms of how the technology is evolving. And what the EU is, I'm just guessing, trying to do is, what you always said, Wado, that GDPR um, shouldn't be a burden to doing business and shouldn't be a barrier. Actually, if you, you know, think about personal data in a, in a, a sustainable way and you know, do risk, take a risk-based approach and mm-hmm. think about um, you know, what you're doing in terms of the effect on, on, on people, then, then you can actually do a lot more with the data that you collect. Sure. So I guess when you transfer that logic to this new proposal for AI regulation, it's the same kind of thing. It doesn't have to, in the user mind, it doesn't have to be a, a barrier to you know, innovative companies doing interesting things with AI or solving problems with AI. If you put a framework around it, it doesn't have to hold things back. But that's, that's their um, approach. Yeah, and I guess it's a matter of identifying the risk. And a lot of the risks right, right now are around 
sort of the outcomes being unfair. So if you mm-hmm. use artificial intelligence in order to make decisions yeah. to do with, I don't know, employment yeah. or access to, to services or, or yeah. health or anything like that, and the outcomes are unfair because the information that is uh, on which the, the decision-making is, is fed um, is imperfect information, then we need to address that unfairness. And I think a lot of the artificial regulation, artificial intelligence regulation or thinking behind that regulation is how to, how to address that uh, possible unfairness. Yeah. But it's very difficult because yeah. how do you make a, a, a computer not unfair? Yeah. You know, how do you, you put, if, you, if that is a legal obligation, how do you how do you know how to do that? So it's 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 easy to say, it's yeah. easy to conceptualize. It's difficult to program. One yeah. of the things I imagine uh, aligned to that is um, a, a requirement or an obligation for companies to make the outcome of uh, artificial intelligence systems understandable to the to the data subject or someone you know involved in the process. So actually, you know, the decision whether it's a recruitment based decision or health insurance, whatever it is, can be actually explained in a way that isn't just some technical jargon, right? And that's, that's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, if that was a legal requirement to make things understandable, <laughs> you've got uh, yeah, a huge barrier. Yeah, and I think the, the issue about transparency and technology is that they go in, direct, in, in the opposite direction, in the sense that technology becomes less and less understandable, uh, and therefore, to, to rely on transparency as a mechanism for fairness becomes more difficult. Yeah. So that's something we need to bear in mind. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe we're getting a bit philosophical. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll probably see more progress on the, the EU, sorry, the UK data reform side. So probably in the next podcast, we'll have more yeah. of an update on that than the future of artificial intelligence. But yeah. we're ambitious people, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on both. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, I mean, we didn't mention it, but and this just takes uh, us way out of the philosophical level. But one thing, just thinking about all of these, you know, difficulties and complexities and challenges is the, the proposal. One thing that we didn't mention is that it, it has a lot of similarities with GDPR in that it's extraterritorial um, and covers a couple of use cases there. Yeah. So that's another interesting dimension that... Um, you know, we can have a look a at similar, similar enforcement levels built in as well. Yeah, I mean, even greater, right? I, I, I think it's you know six percent this time or thirty million, um, whichever is greater. So, um, do you think this? Do you think this proposal is the first stage of a series of proposals before we get somewhere? Is that your gut on this? Yeah, I, I think um, the the obviously the EU was consulting on this. Again, we, we yeah. provided our, our own response to the consultation. Over the past few months, the, whoever is in charge of this will have been uh, digesting all this, all these um, responses to the consultation. And we will probably see, if not, if not before the end of the year, early next year, we will see some sort of evolution to this proposal. I, that's what I would suppose. Yeah. It's not going to go away. It's not like yeah. Yeah. they're going to say, oh, is this, too, this is too difficult. Let's not worry about it. I, I think it will, it will happen yeah. and, and it will move more or less uh, quickly, depending on, on how much of a, uh, a sort of consensus there is amongst member states. A, yeah. you know, a lot of EU uh, 
regulatory policy issues depend on that on that level of consensus. Okay. Yeah. So, right, I think we've got just about a couple more minutes, and then we'll um, we'll finish. But um, we've talked a lot about cookies and consent management rules differing across the world and even across Europe in terms of regulators' interpretations over the last couple of years. Uh, are there any uh, developments in that space that you guys would like to pick up on, just to sort of point out for listeners? Sometimes we can pick it up uh, in a bit more detail in the next in the ne- next podcast. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, just because you mentioned about the UK reforms that we didn't uh, mention as part of all of this, is obviously there are there a significant chunk and a lot of attention has been given to uh, proposed changes to... Um, PECR, which are the regulations that implement the e-privacy directive here in the UK. Um, And so there are um, considerations and a lot of discussion around how uh, the regulation of cookies might be different in the UK context again, which Eduardo, I don't know um, if that was, you know, a big, um, well, I imagine it was, but I mean, what, what your team's response was to some of the proposed changes in that respect. So, yeah, what we're, we're coming from is that, once again, uh, relying on consent yeah. as the default for the use of cookies or anything like, like that is um, counterintuitive from a public policy perspective, given that uh, it's so difficult to understand and there is so much uh, objection to the whole idea of of uh, of consent and so on, but uh, what on that front, perhaps what is the most interesting thing I've seen in terms of cookie consent uh, in recent times is the announcement by the EDPB mm-hmm. to set up a task force looking at how to interpret the existing requirements under the e privacy directive around cookie consent, and after all this time. Uh, and also having heard some of the European Data Protection Authorities said, well, this is not quite uh, the same as the GDPR and the one-stop shop doesn't apply to this and all that. Now the reality is that this the e-privacy is so closely linked to the GDPR and at the end of the day it's part of the European Data Protection Framework that officially or unofficially, the one-stop shop... Oh, and and the, the, the more uh, harmonized way of supervising compliance does apply. And the fact that the EDPB is looking at this as a, as a, as a body, looking at an e-privacy issue like cookie consent, but from the, from the point of view of the EDPB, only shows that this is a, a top priority yeah. for the European re- regulators. And we'll see. And you can only guess what the outcome is going to be of that task force uh, work on cookie consent. But what will probably happen is you will see uh, a consolidated set of guidance and interpretation of what amounts to valid cookie consent. Yeah, I mean, it's a a great point because I know that... um you know, a lot of a lot of questions have come up over. Well, I mean, we've been talking about it for a couple of years now, and primarily because there's been, um, you know, each individual DPA issuing their own guidance and weighing in in different elements. Obviously, the EDPB ended up updating their guidelines on consent, which helped to harmonize uh, 
DPA's approach in certain respects. And so, you know, uh, a lot of work was done updating it. The Garantia, I believe, was, you know, the most recent. And I think their uh, final guidelines are entering into effect or did enter into effect in October. And so maybe this is that final piece of the puzzle that will solidify an approach from the DPAs at EDPB level to cookie consent. Um, but it also raises the question, obviously, this is, you know, a big issue that, you know, um, has been looked at for uh, an under the spotlight for a few years now, which always makes me think about the e-privacy regulation as well, that so much work is being done in this area at the moment, but there is also still this e-privacy regulation pending um, and what the outcome of that will be and whether we will expect, I mean, I'm not sure, personally, I don't know if we would expect any grand changes to the road or path that's being taken so far, but yeah, potentially. But a whole year has gone by and nothing has moved. I, see, I think we are on the e-privacy regulation where we were this time last year. <laughs> yeah, we, we may have discussed it in the podcast this last yeah. December and, or November. Yeah. Well, exactly. And this is what the point I was making earlier about the, the lack of the existence of consensus amongst member states yeah. is, is crucial in moving a legislative proposal yeah. along or not here because there is no consensus at all. And it's such a difficult issue, and there are so many different conflicting interests involved. Things haven't moved, and we we don't know. We still don't know whether uh, at one point the council will will take uh, the the position that this is it. This is where we stand, and this is how, what we're going to defend in front of the parliament, or. At one point, the European Commission is going to say, okay, I tell you what, let, let us start again and I, I will put something different on the table. I don't know, or anything in between. Yeah. But that, that is the reality. And, and we, we're we still living in the world of the e-privacy directive. You know, yeah. What, what, like 20 years ago. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Everything's happening and nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Good. Great. Well, listen, uh, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Uh, it's super interesting time for UK data protection also the impacts on the global data protection picture very interesting to to, to track as well um, so really great to be back uh, with that privacy podcast in this particular uh, topic I think we've got a few developments that we might be able to catch up on again maybe around Christmas time or uh-huh. just before we uh, well you were saying at the start you, you're having a breakfast briefing next week ahead of your your firm's consultation um, as part as part of the UK consultation, so I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting feedback uh, from that and, and events that we might attend in November. Excellent. And um, and yeah, and uh, and then our long list of other topics that we'll be tracking as well. So yeah. it'd be great to to see you all again. And uh, feel free to get in touch with us if you have any questions, comments, or want to suggest things for us to talk about on the next episode of that privacy podcast. So from myself, David, Alexis, Roberto, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by One Trust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovelson.